Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material from the podcast plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion that turned the tide of World War II. I'm Robert Child and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. D-Day in 90 Minutes, written by William Bradle, Robert Child, narrated by Travis. The Airborne Awfully sorry, old man, but we simply landed here by accident, captured British paratrooper. The weather didn't cooperate. Storms battered the area, and Eisenhower pushed the invasion date back to June 6th. That looked iffy until meteorologists spotted a break in the weather coming down the English Channel. Eisenhower put the decision to his generals, go or wait until late June. They split. The decision was his and he made it. The invasion was a go. The first to jump were the Pathfinders, trained navigational paratroopers jumping in sticks of 14 to 18 men, of which 8 to 12 would set up the equipment while six acted as bodyguards. Pathfinders were dropped 60 to 30 minutes before the main forces to set up radio and visual markers for the incoming planes and troops. At 9.30 p.m. on June 5th, 20 C-47s carrying 200 Pathfinders took off from British airfields, flying their circuitous route to the drop zones. The planes took anti-aircraft fire over the Kintantan Peninsula coupled with cloud banks that forced the pilots up, down, and around their targets. The C-47 had a cruising speed of only 160 miles per hour. But the planes went in so fast, many Germans thought they were fighters. Off course and under fire, the men jumped. Of 18 U.S. teams to jump, many at only 300 feet, only one made its target. The others scattered over the peninsula with some in the channel. The Pathfinders had been trained in a special school, set up by 37-year-old Brigadier General James M. Gavin, who told his Pathfinders that when they landed in Normandy, you will have only one friend, God. The men landed in areas they had not trained for. They landed in water. They landed in hedgerows and in swamps. Two dropped outside the headquarters of the German 352nd Division. Captain Ernst During leaped from his bed dressed and fired his schmeiser at the two men. He missed, the men disappearing into the night. During didn't realize until the end of the day that his boots were on the wrong feet. Captain During sounded the alert. 13,400 American paratroopers followed the Pathfinders, directed by Rebecca Eureka radio transponder sets every 10 miles and aerial beacons spaced 30 miles apart. The planes were coming in the back door, traveling southwest, then south, then east, and then north, with a whole trip lasting nearly two hours. Many of the men slept during the flight, mostly as a result of the anti-nausea pills they had been given. The 82nd and 101st had specific targets, but their drops became intermingled because the C-47 pilots hit the same anti-aircraft fire and cloud banks as the Pathfinders, and strangely, a lack of night training in the case of the pilots added to the confusion. For the vast majority, 
This was their first combat mission, and they were flying airborne torches. The C-47 did not have self-sealing fuel tanks like almost all other U.S. planes. The pilots were also terrified of mid-air collisions in the dark. They came in at the jump altitude of 600 feet, hit the flak and cloud banks, and either soared or lost altitude. The flak intensified, and the plane scattered with pilots speeding up to get away from the ground fire. The plan was for the paratroopers to jump at 90 miles an hour, but they jumped at much greater speeds. The planes went into evasive action, where the paratroopers knocked to the plane's decks. They had hooked up over the Channel Islands, unable to get up because of the loads they carried. They struggled to their feet, hooked up again, and as the planes leveled out, the pilots punched the green light. Of over 13,000 men, only eight refused to jump and stayed with the planes to face court-martial on landing. A 300-foot jump doesn't take long. The lucky ones dropped into fruit trees or open fields. Some members of the 505th and 506th were not so lucky, dropping into the town square of Saint-Mir-Eglise instead of their planned site five miles southwest of town. The square was lit up because of a burning villa, probably hit by an anti-aircraft shell. The mayor raced to the German headquarters, asking to raise the curfew so the citizens could fight the fire. The German guard was called out to look over the citizens, and the church bells sounded the alert. Flying over the town at 400 feet, the men jumped, and so began the legend of Private John Steele. Steele was drifting down, looking at the soldiers and civilians. A bullet feeling like the bite of a sharp knife hit him in the foot. His chute headed for and hooked on the steeple of the town church at one end of the square. Steele slid down the slate roof to hang just below the eaves next to the belfry and its ringing bells. Steele wasn't the only paratrooper hung up on the church that night. Private Ken Russell also hit the steep slate roof, and his suspension lines caught around the steeple. He slid down the roof and over the edge, dangling when his lines went taut. Sergeant John Ray also landed on the church roof, but on a lower level, and slid down into the square. He was shot in the stomach by a German with a machine pistol. The German brought his gun up to bear on Steele and Russell. Before he could fire, Ray got off a dying shot, hitting the German in the head and killing him. Steele attempted to cut himself loose, but his combat knife slipped from his hands, landing with a clang in the square below. Steele played dead from there on, to be cut down after the battle and taken prisoner. He would escape a few days later, although he was deaf for several weeks due to the clanging bells in the belfry. John Steele was from Metropolis, Illinois, and a fairly old paratrooper at 31 on D-Day. The actor Red Buttons played Steele in the movie The Longest Day at the age of 44. To this day, Visitors to Saint-Mir-Eglise see a dummy paratrooper snagged on the steeple of the church to commemorate his harrowing landing. Ken Russell did not lose his knife, cut himself down and raced out of town. In his fall of 20 feet, he wrenched his back and broke two ribs. Russell was 17. Both Steele and Russell survived the war. Steele became an engineer in South Carolina, and Russell had a career as a banker in New York City. To the Germans, the sky seemed filled with paratroopers, but probably only 30 landed in the town, with about 20 in the square. Of the 20, 12 were killed in the trees or on the ground, 
including a regimental chaplain. Although Saint-Mir-Eglise was a target for the Americans, it would not be captured until the next day. The vast majority of paratroopers were alone or meeting up with Germans before they met up with Americans. Outside Saint-Mir-Eglise, Lieutenant John Wallace of the 82nd bumped into a German soldier outside a machine gun nest. The German had the drop on Wallace, firing his rifle first. The bullet struck the breech of Wallace's rifle, then his hand. Both men ran from each other. One group of paratroopers were going single file along the side of a hedgerow when they met a German patrol coming from the other direction. The two groups passed each other, neither acknowledging the other. Major Legere of the 101st talked his way out of being captured. Legere was crossing a field when challenged in German. Legere spoke French, not German, and explained he was coming home from visiting his girlfriend and apologized for being out past curfew, all the time working the pin out of a grenade. He threw the grenade, hit the ground, and killed three Germans. Although groups started coming together, equipment was lost and landmarks were unrecognizable. Some groups were led by privates, some by generals commanding only officers. With three senior officers, but only two enlisted men, General Maxwell Taylor told his group, never have so few been commanded by so many. Gliders started to land in the fields. The planners had overestimated the size of the fields and minimized the height and width of the hedgerows. Gliders smashed into the hedgerows or obstacles planted by the Germans. Many paratroopers and pilots were killed or injured, but the vast majority landed with only minor bumps and bruises, and they had their equipment. Men started to get their bearings. General James Gavin sent men on reconnaissance, while he and enlisted men searched for weapon bundles. A lieutenant returned out of a swamp, reporting a nearby railroad track. Gavin had his bearings. There was only one rail line in the area, the cherbourg carenton line, running down the Merderay Valley. While the paratroopers were scattered, their mission targets remained. Targeted batteries directly behind Utah, crossroads to seize, and hold against German reinforcements heading toward the beach and bridges to take over the rivers and canals. Another mission was to cover and clear landing zones for gliders coming in at 4 a.m. The groups were mingled. 82nd troopers formed up with 101st and their equipment was lost or scattered. They lost 60% of their supplies. Many men didn't even make the peninsula. One stick of 18 drowned after jumping into the English Channel. But the small bands grew. Officers and leaders emerged. Targets were identified and taken. The men could only defend their gains with the arms they carried. The Germans could have swept them away with any kind of response. But for now, the Americans held the key to Utah Beach. On the east side of the invasion, British paratroopers came in gliders, landing from a height of 5,000 feet between two parallel rivers, the Khan and the Orne. Two bridges crossed the two rivers, and holding them would stop the Germans from going east to west, from Caen to the coast. The British paratroopers could not just attack and blow the bridges. They had to capture the bridges intact, because they would be needed for the British army to march east to capture Caen. The British would not only have to capture the bridges, but they had to stop the Germans from blowing them as well. The gliders landed almost on top of the bridges, surprising the Germans and the British taking the bridges. The British radioed the success signal, ham and jam, ham and jam. 
150 men now held the bridges, waiting to be relieved. Waves of planes carrying British paratroopers followed the glider troops and ran into the same weather problems and anti-aircraft fires the Americans. They were equally scattered and lost. One lost officer climbed a mileage signpost, lit a match, and determined roughly where he was. For some, the war was over. Two paratroopers landed on the lawn of the headquarters of Major General Josef Reichert, the commander of the 711th Division, and were quickly surrounded. Reichert demanded to know where they came from. One of the paratroopers answered, Awfully sorry, old man, but we simply landed here by accident. Like the Americans, the scattered British formed up into ever larger groups, found where they were, and set out on their jobs. The Germans were scattered as well. The generals were away from the area, Rommel on his way to Germany for his wife's birthday, and most of the others at a war games conference in Rena, 120 miles away. Reports from men like Captain During went into Paris and then Berlin. They were filtered and delayed. The reports never reached Hitler that night. He was asleep, and his aides wanted more confirmation before they dared to awaken him. Plus, Pas-de-Calais and its proximity to England kept the defenders thinking Normandy was a diversion. Some convinced themselves the paratroopers were merely shot-down bomber crews. It would take until the morning to convince most, but not all, the Germans that the invasion of Normandy was real. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series. Be sure to be with us for our next installment. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.